More than a quarter of federal contracting dollars last year went to small businesses. At NASA, more than a third of contract spending went to small businesses last year, earning its sixth consecutive A grade from the Small Business Administration. For more on NASA's small business contracting goals, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with NASA Senior Procurement Executive Carla Smith-Jackson. And first, you'll hear from the Associate Administrator of NASA's Office of Small Business Programs, Glenn Delgado. We have a good partnership in locating small businesses. We do a lot of outreach together to try and locate the small businesses that can do the various missions that we work with to try to make sure that they have the capabilities and skills and training to be able to be successful. Because the more successful they are, the more successful we are. I would say it's engagement with the program so that Glenn's organization understands the requirements and then matching those capabilities with the small business. And then, of course, we come over to our side to execute. But all that upfront work that Glenn talked about is really the success. But it does start with understanding the technical requirement, which is our program side that partners well with small business as well. All right. Well, obviously, NASA does a lot of contracting just across the board. So when it comes to that small business criteria, understanding what small businesses are eligible to compete for, give me a better sense of how that process works here at NASA. From a procurement perspective, we do quite a bit of market research, and that's a requirement per the Federal Acquisition Regulation. Market research is, is knowing what capabilities are available. And so those companies are then channeled over to Small Business. Office of Small Business puts together quite a bit of information I'm sure Glenn can talk about that's searchable for our requiring activity to be able to find, and then they invite small businesses in to talk about them. On my side, we do have an acquisition forecast, which is 18 to 24 months in the future, so people can see what those requirements are. It's searchable, sort of, unsortable. In fact, we just received another award for that particular System. So then we let industry know what's coming. If they know what's coming soon enough, then they can organize to be able to bid on our requirements. One of the things that we've done is, you know, because most of the people that work with me are MBA types like me, business types. We don't talk to scientific stuff. So we put together a program where we have people that are small business tech advisors and small business tech coordinators. So when the small businesses come to us and tell us, hey, we have this idea, we have this, you know, my eyes can kind of glaze over. So we make sure that we match them with the people in the mission offices that can talk the same language with them. And then they see if they have a match, there's something that we can work with them to make sure our missions are successful. So that's the best way we can say that we we meet with them, we hear what they have to say. A lot of times eh, we match them with the people in the tech offices, in the program offices, as she says, and they can see if there's a match and that we can be successful in our mission. All right. I don't know if you have this information at your fingertips here, but we did hear about SBA government-wide meeting that small disadvantaged business goal. Where do things stand on that particular goal? Are you guys on track to meet that goal? Where do things stand currently? In FY22, we actually had an eight point one goal, I believe it was, or an eight point two, and we and we had a, ended up with an eight point one, so we missed it by point oh one. This year, we're a little behind that pace, but we're ahead of the pace we were last year. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of our small business dollars are awarded in the fourth quarter. So right now, we're ahead of where we were at the end of the third quarter of last year in twenty two. So we have a shot at making it in twenty three, but we do do a lot of a large contract awards that basically offset our numbers. So the larger contracts we award, the smaller chance we have of making the SDB number, but we're trying hard. We did exceed the overall small business goal, but the SDB that has to get to 15% by FY25, NASA will be making quite a large contribution to that. It is a challenge because we do have a lot of large human space flight procurements, but we're working hard to find just the niche opportunities for the small businesses. And $3.2 billion, that's a lot of real money that small businesses have received. Carla, you were saying that there's a a longer-term forecast looking at those small business opportunities for the future. In terms of that 
outlook? Where do you see the opportunities for small businesses to continue to do business with NASA? So there are two really big opportunities. The first is what we call product service lines. So those are all of our services contracts. So there are certain lines that we're reserving for small business um, to look at small business first, like construction and facilities management and that kind of thing. That's the first big opportunity. And then the other opportunity is subcontracting, right, with some of our larger programs. Those are the kinds of opportunities from a subcontracting perspective that are are offered and available. Um, We do also have a lot of research projects um, with our STMD group. We have a lot of opportunities to work on science and scientific research. Those are smaller opportunities, but yet a lot of money um, is invested there. So that gives people a good start to be able to start to do business with us. All right. And we heard from Administrator Nelson saying that this is not just, you know, of course, the equity argument side of things is very important for not just NASA, but the Biden administration. That This is also just the way that NASA does its very extraordinary mission, gets people to the moon, someday gets people to Mars, uh, and that small businesses are a key piece of the puzzle there. How are small businesses a key piece of this very unique mission? Our office puts out a lot of publications, you know, so we looked at Orion, we looked at uh, SLS, we looked at a lot of the, our major programs, and an average of almost 1,200 to 2,000 small businesses participate in each one of those programs. And then some of them make very critical parts, so like the Mars Rover, they actually made the drill that drills down and takes the samples that brings it back. So they do a lot of critical work, and we highlight them, and then they, we actually, our large primes, I won't say share them, but if one does a good job for one, they do another job for another and another, and then they keep growing and they get very successful and they diversify what they can do for us because of that. So we just make sure that, one, that they know about the opportunities, that they understand the opportunities, and more importantly, they perform well on the opportunities, and then that helps them grow, which helps us get our missions done. More than 75% of those service contracts that I talked about that provide infrastructure services to, to NASA goes to small business. So that there you can see more than um, three-fourths of the dollars in that arena go to small business. The other piece is we find a lot of innovation comes out of small business. So when we have hard problems, a lot of times we go to the small business to come up with the ideas um, to achieve that. So in that, we're counting on small business to help us get to moon and to Mars. And we're counting on them because they come up with not only innovation, but more efficient ways to do business and to solve hard problems. And I I think you heard some of that with some of the um, companies that talked today. In particular, we went to those companies to be able to give us, I'll say, cutting edge or leading edge solutions. All right. And then just to unpack the other side of that question, the equity side of things. Of course, this is a big priority for the Biden administration. Uh, I believe NASA's uh, Small Business Contractor of the Year is a hub zone contractor. So in terms of, again, making sure that those federal spending dollars, those contracting dollars go to underserved businesses, go to underserved communities, uh, you know, how do you see the federal government and, and NASA specifically driving towards that very important goal? The pandemic's been good to us, to say that in the least, because now, instead of all these companies having to go to outreach events where they have to get on an airplane, but get a hotel, rent a car, all of that. We've been doing a lot of virtual outreach and we've been targeting that community. And those numbers of companies in those communities have gone up. I don't know the exact percentage, but very significantly. And they love the idea. And matter of fact, most of our outreach events, people stay for an average of about, I think it's 90% of the time of our outreach events, where the norm in the world is about 37 to 40% of the time they, they split out. And so our content is very good. We make sure we get 
get all the guest speakers that are properly vetted from our procurement people to our technical people to our mission support people. They come and actually talk at these outreach events, and the companies actually hear us, listen to us, and they can still go right back to work the same day instead of having to do a lot of travel. So that's, I think, has helped us significantly and increase our numbers in those areas. Glenn Delgado, the Associate Administrator of NASA's Office of Small Business Programs, and you also heard from NASA Senior Procurement Executive Carla Smith-Jackson. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting that vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.